Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. I think we have a couple takes. My favorite take this week was the fact that <clears throat> Nishad finally ag- admitted to the thing that I think everyone kind of thought was true, but wasn't totally 100% true, which is, you know, one of their main selling points in 2020 was that FTX has this great cross collateral risk model and you could like give them any shit coin you want and you could post it as margin to take 100x leverage on ETH. And somehow they would liquidate it correctly and like reallocate the collateral. Not a dividend. It's a tale of two fun. Now, your losses are on someone else's balance sheet. Generally speaking, airdrops are kind of pointless anyways. Um, um, I named trading them. firms who were very involved. Um, I like that ETH is the ultimate problem. DeFi protocols are the antidote to this problem. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Chopping Block. Every couple of weeks, the four of us get together and give the industry insider's perspective on the crypto topics of the day. So quick intro is first, you've got Tom, the DeFi maven and master of memes. Next, we've got Robert, the crypto connoisseur and czar of Superstate. Then we've got Tarun, the gigabrain and grand poobah at Gauntlet. And finally, I'm Haseeb, the head hype man at Dragonfly. So we are early stage investors in crypto, but I want to caveat that nothing we say here is investment advice, legal advice, or even life advice. Please see choppingblock.xyz for more disclosures. All right, so we're on to week. What is this? Week three now of the SBF trial, and uh, I'm 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 honestly losing steam. Like it's gotten. I think like the bombshells are mostly over. The I, I've heard so many people described as the star witness for the prosecution. I guess they've had like five star witnesses so far. Basically, anybody who worked at FTX is a star witness. So just to give you the quick rundown, I don't think we're going to talk about it as much on the show uh, because Tom was very <laughs> exhausted by all the SBF talk. But we're just going to run through it real quick for those of you who've been asleep at the wheel. Uh, Caroline Ellison, the scorned lover and the uh, CEO of Alameda Research, was on the stand. She was one of the many star witnesses for the prosecution. She basically agreed that everything was bad and they defrauded people and she was complicit in the whole thing. They played one of the recordings of Caroline getting in front of the Alameda staff and explaining to them, yes, we kind of stole the money slash, you know, lent it from this entity to that entity without an intention to pay it back. She also testified to making up seven different fake balance sheets that she presented to Sam to select from to decide which one to show to defraud their lenders. Uh, She also cried on the stand, which apparently was a big hit. And uh, supposedly this was a a big moment for the prosecution. Uh, Then Nishad Singh, who was um, director of engineering, he testified about the financial chaos at FTX. He's described as the moral heart of this story in that he was somebody who was always had tortured feelings. He uh, was used for political donations and some real estate purchases, but he always felt half-hearted about it. He confronted Sam several times to try to get him to come clean, uh, but that never happened. He also did engage in some lavish purchases that he eventually unwound uh, after the, um, you know, the whole ship capsized. Uh, And that's basically it so far. And there've been some accountants and some other stuff, but so far, honestly, if you've been following the story before now, I don't think there's anything new that we've really learned. Uh, in the last week, it's just all kind of been on display. Anything you guys would add to what you've been observing so far in the trial? I'll just give a quick shout out uh, to how I consume the information about the trial. So there's a Twitter account by a journalist who's like in the courtroom, Inner City Press, that I just read their tweet summaries of like the day's, you know, events in like, you know, two minutes. Um, and it's a great way to consume all the information. Hold on. There is one more journalist who's in the courtroom every day. <laughs> Yeah, Laura, we should also Laura, shout you out. don't watch you don't watch Laura's recap videos. Come on, Robert. I actually have doing? not watched the videos yet. I've heard they're incredible. Um, I'm just saying, you know, that was how yeah. I was consuming the information. <laughs> I, same. Matt Russell, the guy who runs uh, Inner City Press, is a machine. You're like basically reading the transcript yeah. from the courtroom. I briefly considered going myself because it is open to the public and it's just down here in Lower Manhattan. And I was oh, like, why not? You, you know, to curious. You got to go at least one I, day. You got to go at least one day. <laughs> I, I talked to a friend who tried to go and it greatly dissuaded me because he said. He got there, and they, first of all, if you want to wait in line, you have to, if you want to go to the main courtroom, you have to get there at like six a.m. There's a big line. Everyone else is going to like the overflow room, and then they take your electronics, um, and then you're waiting in line for hours for the courtroom to open without electronics. And so it's just like this 
kind of silly setup. You're probably not even going to make it to the remain room anyway. But if anyone's interested, uh, you can go. Wait, how is he live tweeting if they take his electronics? I actually, I'm guessing he's in the overflow room. I don't actually know how he was doing that. Maybe, I'm kind of curious. Maybe press gets their own exemptions. Yeah, I, think press, I think press is allowed to report directly. Because people are also like different journalists have been live tweeting pictures of the sketches. Yeah, not shout out to the cartoonist. I don't think they're that good. <laughs> Do we get an overlay of some of the cartoons? I feel like we need to, we need to insert that into the into this. Robert is episode. trying to tell you he wants Dolly to replace all of the court sketch artists. That would be amazing. Put a camera in the room and let the camera use a generative AI to basically create its scene. I mean, I don't know what the rules are and like why they have to actually have like to this day like you know an illustrator instead of like a photo of the actual a- situation, but. It does feel like one of these types of government jobs where even if the technology was worked, the government couldn't do it without it being political suicide because they lose all these jobs. So it's, it's, it's all a, these jobs. There's like five well, people like that. Think of the yeah, court sketch yeah. artist is not all these jobs. I don't think that's like a. I, I, I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if there's just like some collective action for people who work in the court system where they like would be very not into this. I mean, the there fact is something that the, kind of the romantic fact about that a it. Fucking stenographer is still there, like typing on a fucking you know typewriter. Give me a break. I had a friend who was a court stenographer, and all I got to tell you is that job can be done with. Wait, how did you make friends with a court stenographer? Uh, I were partying, but uh, let's. <laughs> let, I don't know. Like, I don't know what. What do you want me to tell you? Like, okay, I don't know. I'd, interesting. Okay, were they? Was the court stenographer in crypto? No, no, no. This is okay. This is just okay. Court, right courts, All right. He, he just a guy I know in New York who is a stenographer, and I lived with him and ten other people in Mexico City like ten years ago for like a month. So ignoring the the this person, which I don't know why you guys are so interested in who this stenographer, is, <laughs> but the guy like he's a nice guy. I, I I'll tell you truly the reason why I would not peg you as somebody who'd make friends with a stenographer. I make I friends like with anyone. I, that's the difference between. Me I, and I most believe you. People. I believe you. But like in the sort of the vector space of people, like that is the inverse of you as a court stenographer. Nah, court stenographers like to to go see Eastern European minimal techno just as much as I do. Okay. Uh, uh, Word. I would. I would basically say, uh, like, I talked with him a lot about, like, aren't you ever worried that? your job will be replaced because it's so fucking easy to replace it. Like, I could just put a microphone at the courtroom. Right. We have amazing transcription services now. Um, and he was like, no, 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 they can't do it. The government just, like, can't get rid of these jobs. It's like, a, it's a, it, it would, like, the, the, everyone who works in the court system would revolt. And he he has a strong feeling that it's, like, a almost union-like collective action thing that they would be against it. So I think I think those jobs are safe for, not because they can't be replaced, but simply because it would cause a riot. So do you think that in like 2050, it's like the early years of like the singularity, we're still going to have people manually typing all the things that happen? I think the singularity doesn't hit America first, right? It's going to go to mm. some country that adopts things earlier, like Singapore or something. It's right? going to be in, in Mexican techno clubs. That's where the singularity is going <laughs> to yes. happen first. It will start there, yes. <laughs> For sure. For sure. Yeah. It might already have happened 10 years ago, actually. And then uh, <laughs> ended and it'll come back later. Okay. So, all right. SBF, uh, whatever. We're done talking about SBF. Uh, I guess you'll. No, no. Wait, wait, wait. You, I think we could. We have a couple takes. My favorite take this week was the fact that <clears throat> Nishad finally ag- admitted to the thing that I think everyone kind of thought was true, but wasn't totally 100% true, which is, you know, one of their main selling points in 2020 was that FTX has this great cross-collateral risk model and you could like give them any shitcoin you want and you could post it as margin to take 100x leverage on ETH. And somehow they would liquidate it correctly and like reallocate the collateral. And it turned out they actually did zero of that. Uh, and Alameda just ate the losses on a lot of these things just directly. Like they just straight up took the... They were, they were kind of like a Ponzi scheme for trading funds. Because like if I'm a trading firm, I actually am heavily incentivized to go max leverage at at FTX because they didn't liquidate me correctly or on time. <laughs> and that that's sort of what he admitted. Hold on. Are you it, talking about the two bugs that he was um, that he was talking about of like the hackers, quote unquote? Uh, but then he also talked about the liquidation engine and like that they didn't oh, I see. They, they didn't actually like 
they didn't correctly like, oh, like here, think about this way. Suppose I put in right now, I have a thousand Pepe and the Pepe are worth say thousand dollars, right? And now I put that as collateral and now I take a 10X leverage thing on ETH and I had put up a thousand dollars of collateral, I'm getting $10,000 of exposure. Now, the problem is Pepe's price could crash 50% faster than ETH's price goes down the, you know, 10% that would need for me to be liquidated. So now my collateral might only be worth $500. So in theory, they should have liquidated me already. But apparently he was saying he gave a lot of evidence that they didn't do that correctly. Like they didn't rebalance mm. as, as efficiently as they had been claiming or at all. Alameda just kind of sat on the losses and tried to trade out of them manually. I see. <laughs> I mean, we kind of knew that already that like Alameda was eating a lot of bad liquidations. We knew that yeah. about the mobile coin thing, right? Right. But apparently right. this is like systematic. <laughs> that was like their justification for this backdoor stuff. And I was like, I, I, I just think that that's like, that's even worse. It's like hurdles all the way down. It's like Al FTX doesn't liquidate anyone. BlockFi I mean, doesn't actually, like Alameda. It, Al yeah, 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 yeah. Block, you sure. know, it's like, it's like everyone you, you was know just what like, does? you know what does? DeFi yes, protocols do exactly. <laughs> that, that was but, that was the natural zinger here, obviously. <laughs> yes, but the interesting thing is that that might actually be positive for the defense, right? If like the defense is like, well, look, this is how it always worked, and like Alameda was an intrinsic part of this thing, and it was there from the very beginning, and it was there to actually make FTX liquidations work correctly. It's still fraud because they advertised that they were doing this. Right, right, right. Okay, but the but the really bad charges, I think, are going to be harder to stick if you can convince the jury that well, you know, a lot of liquidations went bad, but we were like, this is how it always worked. We were doing our best. It was it was not fraudulent intent beyond misrepresenting that, you know, we just suck at liquidating things and we pretended not to be bad at liquidating things. That's a story, but, at least. But isn't isn't the you you have to admit this human centipede of bad liquidations, right? Of like <laughs> Alameda not like FTX not liquidating Alameda, Alameda not liquidating getting liquidated by BlockFi, dot, 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 right? Like, what's the... Well, okay, <laughs> speaking, all right, speaking of the human centipede of liquidations, uh, the, the, perhaps the head of that human centipede came into the forefront today. So the New York Attorney General just sued Gemini, Genesis, and DCG, all of whom for defrauding investors and allegedly defrauding retail customers for over a billion dollars. So if you, if you recall, way back in the day, there was this big spat. I mean, it's obviously still continuing, but... In the past, there was a big spat between Gemini with their Gemini Earn product and Genesis, which was a lending company under the banner of DCG, which is this big holding company that has a big pile of money, that Gemini had this Earn product. Earn product used Genesis on the back end to actually generate their yield. And Genesis lied to Gemini about the status of their balance sheet, and that caused them all to get mad and you know do the Spider-Man pointing at each other thing. And unfortunately, it turns out that everyone defrauded everyone. That's, I think, the, um, the the moral of the story. So the New York Attorney General, so they were in bankruptcy proceedings and they were kind of getting closer to uh, some kind of settlement, but uh, you know, creditors were pissed at everything and nothing seemed to get done and everyone was starting suing each other. And the New York Attorney General comes in and says, guess what? You're all sued uh, and you're all now uh, you know, criminally liable under New York law. So um, more or less the story is that uh, Gemini claimed that Genesis loans were over-collateralized. But they actually were not over collateralized. Internally, they knew the loans were under collateralized and they knew that the risk factors, especially um, you know, months before everything blew up, they knew that the riskiness of Genesis was extremely bad. Uh, but they claimed to customers that Genesis loans are over collateralized, everything's great, Genesis is a super strong partner, and they continue taking customer deposits even after they knew that things were in a very bad state at Genesis, or at least not a bad state, but a risky state at Genesis. Uh, and then, of course, DCG, we've covered this in previous shows. DCG's claim to have absorbed the losses from their uh, three arrows write down for Genesis. So DCG claimed, hey, I'm coming in. I'm going to make sure that everyone's okay. Uh, but instead of actually filling the hole, they just gave a promissory note and claimed the promissory note was worth a billion dollars. So you're saying um, at the end of the human centipede, you put dollars in and you get promissory notes out? You should out <laughs> promissory, promissory notes from DCG. Well, promissory yes. notes are better than what Alameda got. So, Or I guess what FTX holders got. FTT um, is still worth more than those promissory notes, I bet. FTT is a lot. There's, there's still some liquidity for it. <laughs> How much is FTT but, worth today? Oh, I would love to know the answer. I bet it's 20 cents. Okay. No, guess the market cap. And by the way, guess this is also delicious in the human centipede theme. Apparently, Genesis has loaned 60% of all of, of their loan book was Alameda, which was all collateralized by FTT. Okay. Fully diluted valuation FTT. Take a guess. I want each of the three of you. Uh, uh, 700 million. 300 million. Tom? 
Tom? I'm, I'm looking at it right now, so I'm oh, going to guess. 341. Oh, okay. oh, good, good, oh, good guess. Look at that. Three, very good. Very good. Okay. That's yeah, worth that's... more than the promissory note. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that fully diluted is a meaningful metric anymore, though. Because Correct. I don't think there's sure, going to sure, be sure, more dilution. Sure. But, but my point is, people are still <laughs> trading it. You're getting some liquidity, right? Like, yeah, but you couldn't, sell, no. you couldn't sell $350 million of FTT. You could probably sell like $3 million before bringing the price to zero. That's still I mean, more than the promissory note. That's still more than the promissory note. That is true. <laughs> yeah, well, and, and so this lawsuit demands disgorgement of profits. And so that what is the profits for DCG from all of this? Hard to say, but I mean, I, this is brutal. I mean, I, I really feel for DCG. I mean, obviously they were assholes in whatever misrepresentations they made, but they are just getting picked apart. I mean, I don't feel bad for DCG. And I've mentioned this on previous shows in a disclosure that I am a creditor to Genesis. I feel like there was uh, significant fraud and misrepresentation there. And as a creditor uh, who provided capital to them, um, I was not aware of the hole in their balance sheet. Um, they were representing to everybody that they were a solvent and healthy business. And so I don't feel bad for them at all. Yeah, I take it back. I don't, I don't feel bad for them with regards to that. I think clearly what they did was super illegitimate. We were also yeah. Genesis customers and uh, we, we just stopped working with them when all this shit came down. And we're, we're very lucky that we didn't have a residual balance with them at that time. Well, I will yeah. say Robert is just you know, angry that he was an involuntary participant in the human centipede. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody He's wants to be a taste in the of what's coming out. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oof. Uh, Wait, so Robert, how do you feel about Gemini though? I mean, my read of the situation is, you know, Gemini was also clearly defrauded. Did they do everything they could to protect their customers? It seems like they tried to in cases. They tried to use the information they had about the unhealthy position that Genesis was in to start withdrawing funds from Genesis and unwinding before its collapse. Um, it seemed like they were taking actions, but they, you know, they've still representing on their website and marketing collateral that everything was going great. That's what I've read from the lawsuit. I mean, I, I feel more for them. Like I you know, the status quo is to like, you know, not change what's on the website. <laughs> Every time you find something new about a counterparty, it's not like they're going to go from like, you know, oh, we only make loans to Genesis and it's all over collateralized and it's a great program to being like, change the website to like, we hate them. They're untrustworthy. They're committing fraud. Like, well, apparently the loans were never over collateralized though. I hear you. And you know what? That was also a problem at BlockFi and Celsius and every other one of these entities, right? You know, this this, this centipede is turning into a hydra. Well, you know, speaking like, of centipede, <laughs> they also talk about, I think at some point, like 50% of the loans were also collateralized with like GPTC shares. So it's like, there's another sort of like loop, I guess, at the end of the centipede oh where it's like, all, yeah, oh, yeah, it's all kind the, of fucked. Um, it was the snake eating the tail. Yeah. 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 I don't know if it's the tail, but it's eating something. <laughs> Ouroboros. <laughs> Right. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jeez. I mean, like, the heart of the trade, the trade in air quotes, for years was DCG had Grayscale. Genesis borrowed money, loaned it to 3AC, loaned Bitcoin to 3AC, who took that Bitcoin, subscribed to GBTC, put the Bitcoin into the trust, which is locked forever, and tried to sell it at a profit. And... It was really like, in essence, taking customer money from Genesis lenders and putting it back into DCG. It was always just like DCG in multiple ways, taking money from Genesis, whether it was directly, which is DCG literally was borrowing money directly from Genesis in inappropriate ways, or indirectly, which was Genesis lending to 3AC, who put the money into Grayscale, which went to DCG. The whole thing was like DCG just robbing this like piggy bank for years. Like, yeah, it, it feels like to, I mean, it, it, it feels very conniving to try to like protect the, the cash cow at DCG, which is, which is Grayscale um, versus, you know, effectively like Grayscale makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year on fees on the, the, the trust products. And so, you know, effectively what you should have done here is have those equity holders eat the losses from, from Genesis. And instead they're like, actually, no, fuck uh, anyone who used Genesis. We're going to try to protect this, this, this gem and have it be untouched with this sort of you know, bullshit pseudo bond related party transaction. Um, and so I feel like that was the part that, um, I mean, it was all actually bad, but it felt like there was a clear solution there that they could have 
taken, and yet they they chose not to. I guess the reason why the DCG story is like, I guess the reason why it seems so sad is that it really is like this Roman Empire crumbling in front of us. Like DCG, it's for those of you who don't know, DCG is a very storied firm. They were super early into crypto. Start, you know, CoinDesk, Grayscale, Genesis were three of the titans of the industry, and they still are in in their own ways. Like Grayscale is still the largest uh, exchange traded product in crypto. It owns a huge amount of the outstanding Bitcoin. It's bigger than any other product in this industry. CoinDesk, obviously, a very OG and very well known publication, and um, they built all this from the ground up, you know. And now they are like they're just collapse. Like you can see the collapse. And it, it's it's also said too that you know Grayscale. We just talked about Grayscale being a cash cow, and there were some stories this week about the Bitcoin ETF. There was a false story that the Bitcoin ETF had already been approved, and markets kind of went crazy over that. It turned out to be bullshit. Um, but you can see that the SEC is signaling that most likely at this point, almost everyone believes that an, an ETF is coming soon. Um, and the it was it was news as well that the SEC did not appeal the Grayscale um, outcome from from the uh, panel of judges, who basically said, "Look, the." Um, the, the grayscale denial was capricious and, and uh, unfair. That said, if grayscale does convert, then uh, if it converts to an ETF, then the fees are going to drop massively. And the idea that this is like this amazing cash cow, you're probably going to get, you know, 15, 20% of the fees that it was originally getting. And so th- it's, it's kind of like this, this massive decapitation of everything in the, in the DCG empire. And maybe look, they had it coming. Obviously they, what they did in the case of Genesis was extremely unethical. And fucked over a lot of people, but it's just it's just sad to see so much carnage in somebody who at, at one time was one of the pillars of the industry. That's the thing that I reflect on. I don't know. It's like that meme of like, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? Uh, I, I'd like that. That's kind of my feeling when I look at DCG. I hadn't thought about it in like at least two weeks until you just brought it up. And <laughs> <laughs> crypto, it's how 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 often do you think about DCG? I think that's the that's the analogy in in this industry. Nowadays, never. Well, I think for creditors, probably they think about it more often. Yeah, for creditors, like I'm in a chat group where people are just all day complaining <laughs> about how all their money was stolen every single oh, day. Man. It's that just sucks. ugly. That's you guys impressive. need to launch a social token for your group chat on FriendTech. Oh, for the uh, unsecured uh, creditors yes. committee participants of creditors. Uh, Genesis. Yeah. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Well, uh, moving on from sad things to uh, other Maybe sad things. So Uniswap is in the news this week, and some people are mad, some people are defending Uniswap, but uh, here's basically the story. So setup. Uh, Uniswap, of course, is an on-chain protocol. They have a token called UniToken, which was launched uh, in 2020, 2021? 2020, I think. So that, that that's a token. It's worth like $5 billion or something. And the, the, the Uniswap protocol, which is on-chain, is governed by the UniToken. Now, the UniToken has never actually voted to instantiate fees in the protocol itself. So if you use Uniswap uh, on-chain, there are no fees that are currently enforced because of the token. No, the, the token has not decided to do that. However, Uniswap also has a company. The company is called Uniswap Labs. They were originally the company that was set up to like build this thing. And that company separately raised a fundraising round, uh, I believe, last year. And so they have a separate set of investors. Uh, it was a round led by Polychain. Uh, and... Those investors have a stake in Uniswap, the company, but they did not, you know, purely invest into the token. So Uniswap, the company is building different things. So they built like a wallet. They obviously own the front end. They own the domain. Um, but other things are owned by the Uni token holders. Now, Uniswap token does not enforce any protocol-based fee, but Uniswap Labs, which owns the website, uniswap.exchange or uniswap.org, uh, that website now has decided to charge a 15 basis point fee on certain token pairs. So uh, this caused the internet to kind of freak out. Some people were very pro this and said, okay, this is great. Now you have open source. You, you basically have uh, companies that can build independent business models on top of protocols and build sustainably. That's great. Allows the developers to continue getting paid and build something that can, can work in perpetuity without having to rely on token emissions. You have other people saying like, hey, this is bullshit. The token itself, like, why did you sell this token if the token holders don't get any fees, but this front end is getting the fee and the front end is like the canonical front end, which everyone knows is the, the one that Uniswap is, is used with. And so you have a lot of people going back and forth on GitHub, or sorry, on, on Twitter uh, or on, on X. Uh, I, I will never GitHub stop saying too. that. Yeah, yeah probably GitHub, I'm sure requests, everywhere. You know? 
at this yeah. point, pretty much everywhere. Set um, fee to zero, you know? That's PR. right. The fees right now for Uniswap, so it hasn't been running very long as the time of us recording, but basically the approximate run rate of revenue that they're getting per year, the annualized revenue, is around 30 million. So it looks like a pretty good, decent business, you know, but obviously there's um, there's probably some overhead in running the business, but in terms of revenue, that, that seems pretty strong. That said, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about this. So I'd love to just kind of go around the room and get reactions about how you feel about the Uniswap Labs front-end monetization. I'll go first as somebody that was in a similar position with Compound Labs, which had built a protocol. So at Compound Labs years ago, you know, we thought that the correct business model for the company that had originally built the protocol and then handed it off was not to monetize the protocol for itself, but to try to build an application on top of the protocol that would be profitable as a new business line. So at Compound, we built a product called Compound Treasury, and it was you know an application or business built on top of the protocol, just like anyone could build, right? Anyone out there could go and like on equal terms, build whatever they wanted that made use of this system. And... You know, we thought it was a really great plan. And like for years, it started to grow. And then the whole crypto market blew up and the product was shuttered. And it eventually, in some sense, led to what I'm doing today, which is super state. But the idea was build a private for-profit thing on top of a DeFi protocol and do it as a way of generating profit for the developers. And anyone can go out and do this. There's no reason why... Tarun can't start a thing called bestuniswapinterface.com and charge a fee to use bestuniswapinterface.com. And there's no reason why Tarun couldn't go out and start, you know, Compound Treasury or whatever. Um, but, you know, if you're super deep and close to something, you're obviously the best equipped to try to create a product that's monetized on top of it. So I get where they're coming from. The pros of it are it's a way of driving revenue. I think the subtle pro of this is it actually is going to create more competition at the interface layer to the Uniswap protocol itself. I actually think what they're going to inspire is a lot more alternate interfaces and forks and things that are literally trying to cannibalize their own interface. I think it's going to push more volume over time to trading aggregators and things that like bundle Uniswap transactions alongside others. I think what it's going to do is it's going to be a good revenue stream for them, but it's over time going to obsolete, you know, the app.uniswap interface. And I think that's a good thing um, in a lot of ways, but you know, I don't expect that it's going to be an incredibly long-term sustainable thing. I think in a lot of ways, it's good for them. Like, it creates a lot of competition at the protocol level uh, for better interfaces and more innovation and more people trying different things that don't have a 15 basis point fee. Um, and so I think there's a lot of interesting upsides to this. I get the sort of community pushback on this. It's like, oh, well, you know, you guys are taking a fee, but the protocol is not. But like the protocol can take a fee if it wanted. It just hasn't yet. And so I think it brings that conversation to the forefront and it makes it even more interesting and more timely, which is like, how do you allocate fees between the protocol itself and the interface built on top of it? And what's right and what's fair and what's good and what's viable and what's competitive? And like, I think that that conversation is even happening is also extremely positive for Uniswap. I think. You know, the only thing I would have changed is I think they should have given, you know, a longer lead time to let people know about it, um, simply because it changes the user experience so significantly for a lot of core activities that like, you know, just like turning it on is very different than being like, oh, here's our, you know, vision. We're going to like turn this on at some point, you know, get ready for this. Yeah, I mean, I hear that. In, in in concept, um, I think maybe it's more about how this kind of gets represented publicly. Like the Uniswap DAO gave you know what, like forty fifty million dollars to like Uniswap Foundation. You know, ostensibly sure that's for protocol development. It's not for sort of application development. But like for for most people, I don't think that delineation is particularly clear. And I on the fee element, like you know, fees cannot escalate uh, uh, forever, right? Like there is competition within fees. And so fees that go to a front end inherently come from LPs. They come from traders. Like there's not sort of this infinite pie. And so, you know, if, if anything, this is, yeah, I think there's a stat now that's like 40% of volume is going through the front end based on 
the, the fees that are being uh, taken and sort of approximations from, from Uniswap. And so this is the primary way that people actually um, access Uniswap liquidity. Um, it feels maybe a bit confusing to um, try to tie in um, funding to the foundation to uh, uh, separate from this uh, um, from from labs, which is kind of the, the experience that most people have when they use Uniswap. So I, I think it's fine if there's like a clear delineation. And I think you know maybe even naming it something other than Uniswap Labs and having it totally be third party, that's fine. Um, but in, in practice, I, I don't notice enough that delineation is clear. Yeah, I kind of more or less agree with what Robert pointed out. I also think there's a sense in which there's still a lot of expense that has to be paid to keep the market share of a front end. And a real question to me is like, is this sufficient to to motivate you to keep like spending money on the, you know, trying to have your front end be the best? Or is it actually like going to get eaten? I kind of think because we're kind of in this like low volume environment, it's sort of like hard to to see. But I think like if we see any kind of like green shoots of like prices moving quickly and liquidity start, sort of dries up to some extent because there's some losses for LPs, you could imagine that like people actually end up going through different aggregators. And I'm just not sure how that, that plays out. But yeah, I mean, I, I think also the introduction of Uniswap X as like, uh, you know, segments of LPs from purely passive to kind of these just-in-time piece uh, LPs there already was this kind of like tranching of fees going on anyway. And this is just kind of adding to that stack. I do think the Uniswap front end order flow is generally viewed as sort of the dumbest order flow, right? It's like the ones that's easiest to sandwich attack. It's the one that's easiest to front run. Like it's people who are like, clearly they don't care enough um, that they're just, you know, going to the main website. And, you know, it's a convenience fee. It's a convenient... The most valuable flow for sophisticated actors, for sure. And I think there's sort of this weird thing that this extra fee might make users actually pay attention to getting sandwiched, for instance, a lot more. Because they'll notice the compounding of the 15 basis points plus the sandwich attack fee, right? So I, I think like users may respond to that combo in a way of moving to other front ends. Um, I think it actually might not be this fee itself. It might be that this fee makes the sandwich attacks and front running look much worse. So, okay. I, I clearly am the most negative on this relative to anybody else. It sounds like I fucking hate this. I think that this is awful. I think it was communicated terribly. I think clearly you can tell from the responses of people in the community that they feel blindsided and betrayed, which I think to your, to your point, Robert, of like signposting that this is coming uh, shows a big, big, big failure on the part of the Uniswap team. I remember when Uniswap was raising that round and I was talking to other investors in that round. And I, I talked about this on a previous show when we were interviewing um, uh, Zero X, uh, Will from Zero X, that this idea of people raising equity and raising tokens separately and having this divergent cap table, I think is a terrible precedent. And I think it should generally be avoided wherever possible. Um, and this is exactly why. Because now there's two set of constituents who care about Uniswap. There's the people who own the equity and the people who own the token. Here, here are the reasons why I hate it. So one is just kind of spiritually, you know, more or less the team is double dipping. They all got big piles of tokens, which are worth billions of dollars. Uh, the token itself is worth billions of dollars. And then they got paid again by raising money for what otherwise, in almost every other protocol, is just a public service to the protocol they already built, right? If the front end for every single product you use in crypto takes an extra fee, because like, well, but I'm, I developed the front end and I'm supporting it and I'm paying for like, you know, uh, DNS protection and this and that. And like, I need to keep this sustainable. What, what that would imply is that every single protocol should have a front end that takes a fee. And I think that's a crazy equilibrium to end up at. You know, why would we not end up at that? You know, if you, well, if you use Geth, well, I, Geth requires active development and we want to keep it sustainable. So if you send a transaction through Geth, you, you have to pay us a fee. Now you could use a fork, you could use some other client, but our client, you know, obviously that's a bit of a reductio ad absurdum, but it, it's emblematic of like, isn't this the point of crypto was that we didn't do shit like this, that we didn't have these like thousand little paper cuts of middlemen. No, but you have, you have the option to not take the paper cut. That's, that's the difference, right? Yes. Okay, fine. This okay, fine. So you have the option to not take the paper cut. Now here's why I think this argument is, is bullshit for Uniswap, right? Everybody knows that most of the volume going through Uniswap comes through the front end or a big portion of it, right? 40% or whatever. That portion is the most valuable portion. 
because it's retail, right? It's the retail uninformed flow that everyone else is going to follow. If that flow goes somewhere else, people will follow that flow. Now you could say, well, this is going to incentivize competition right now. There's going to be more front ends for Uniswap. Like I, I, first of all, I don't believe that's true. I, I think 15 bips is so low. Retail is going to bear it. Obviously, if you look at what retail pays on other platforms, they are not fee sensitive to 15 bips, right? Like MetaMask charges, what, 80 bips? Uh, Coinbase charges like 1.5%. I mean, that's just robbery. I mean, that's just... Sure, sure. But 15 bips, like, that's like the lowest tier on Binance, right? Like, people are not going to revolt against 15 bips. So I think they know, and they probably chose that intentionally, because they know that it's not going to cause a lot of volume to go away. But at the end of the day, and I completely agree with Tom here, that is zero sum with the protocol. It just is. There's no fucking way it's not. You could argue like, well, but it's going to incentivize people to go somewhere else, but they won't. And it's, it's not a theoretical question. They're not going to go away from the front end. The retail will continue using it because they don't know. They probably can't even tell what the fees are. They can't tell they're being sandwiched. They can't tell well, any of these things. It's zero sum, but it's taking away from users. It's not taking away from like the liquidity providers, in my opinion, not directly. I mean, maybe indirectly. It's really just increasing the total fee load of using Uniswap, right? There's going to be some reduction in volume, right? Like there's some point where the fee will reduce volume, which is going to be bad for LPs. I think it's this like related party issue. Like I don't take any issue with MetaMask adding a fee. It's like, hey, you go build a wallet. You want to slap a fee on some aggregators, like go for it. I think it's sort of the mixing of there's the labs and the foundation and the labs is for profit and the foundation is not. And it's like, who's developing what, like who is aligned with what? And, and right now they're, they're, they're not aligned with each other. But I remember having a conversation with an investor in the Uniswap Labs round. And I was like, I, here's why I hate this. Here's why I hate that divergence of goals, because it's going to end up in something like this. It's going to end up with the company wanting to take a fee for the front end and the protocol wanting to take a separate fee for the protocol. And they were like, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And I was like, really? How are you going to, how are you going to make this valuation make sense if you don't do that? It's like, no, we're going to charge for other stuff. We're going to do a wallet. We're going to do fiat on-ramp. We're going to do this other stuff. We're never going to do that because that would put us in opposition with the token holders. Well, here we are. It's a fucking bear market and the front end's taking a fee. And yes, it's true that, okay, look, Robert, I mostly agree with you that I think it's going to have a very small effect on front end volume. Some people who are smarter are going to go use aggregators or whatever to go around the fee, but most of the really valuable flow is not going to do that because they're just not fee sensitive, right? I think the whole point of why you can extract so much from retail is that it's very um, inelastic, right? The demand from retail. The problem is that when the protocol does introduce its fee, that fee will have to be lower because it knows that 40% of the volume goes to the front end goes to the uniswap.exchange front end. And if retail is able to bear, let's say 60 basis points is like that point, the inelasticity of demand is such that they will bear up to 60 and then after 60, they really start falling off, right? Let's assume, let's just model it as something. So they'll, they'll pay up to 60 bips. Okay, well, 15 just went to the company. So that means now uni holders only get 45 bips before it starts making no sense anymore. Like there is just only so much that the demand side is willing to bear. And if the front end takes this much, only that much is left for the token holders. Like there's no, it's, it's no possible way that that logic does not hold. That's why I hate this. I think it is zero sum with token holders. There's no fucking way it's not. And if you wanted to incentivize other front ends, delete your front end. That, that will really incentivize other front ends if your front end goes away. But obviously that's not what they're doing. Make your front end a, a, a panel of other front ends that you can route to. There's so many ways to create competition for front ends. This is not it. And I don't think that competition for front ends is going to happen because of this, it would be a side effect because they're like, oh, maybe we could also take a fee. But I guarantee you those other front ends are going to get almost no volume. It, it will probably incentivize more volume to aggregators. But beyond that, I, I really don't think so. So what do you think the solution is? What do most startups do that are in this situation? I mean, right. this is a very unique situation. <laughs> it's yeah, not, no, it's weird. not that unique. It's, I don't no, think it's most not. startups are in well, a Uniswap the position. Only, only other company, and I know those who are more ETH aligned to listening to this will be angry when this is. The only other company that's very similar is Ripple, where Ripple equity Wait, was sold a bunch of times. Oh, oh, no, oh Ripple, yeah. Okay, so, so the Ripple first, thing, first thing. Ripple, the token had the Stellar and Ripple had very similar like weird dynamics between the the tokens and the. Okay, yes. Equity. Once you create that divergence between equity and tokens, yeah, that's what that was the original sin, right? That is the first thing that I generally encourage companies not to do. Do not go sell equity separately from your tokens. Once you do that, I agree with you. You're in a really sticky spot because you do have a fiduciary obligation to your equity holders to maximize shareholder value. That's how fucking capitalism works. So once you're there, I think you do need to draw some kind of bright line or you need to divest yourself of the front end, right? There's a bunch of stuff that the uni holders technically govern. They own, what do they govern? They govern like the uni ticker. They govern- uh, The V3 light BSL. 
the BSL. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff like the license. There's a bunch of stuff that they gave to the uni holders. They could also, in principle, give them the front end and the domain. Hundred uh, percent. They did not do that. They did not do that. And so they own the front end and the domain. And there's this fu- there's this fantasy that well, the really valuable thing is uni, the protocol, not the front end. Of course, the front end is valuable. Of course, the front end is valuable. And the front end is valuable because it was the de facto way to access Uniswap for you know three years. I'll, I'll bring up a counterpoint, which is you know when you look at well, how did Ripple get into that situation, or Stellar, or Uniswap, or anyone? I think the root of this is that in the year 2023, there's still not great legal structures or understanding for protocol-esque, non-entity-esque things. And every one of them start off as a company or an LLC or something that there's like an established legal structure for, which is when they go out and they raise money (laughs) and they hire employees and they do all of that. Like no one is going and doing all that typically without that first step of like, oh, forming a company and hiring people and raising money and like doing all the things. Almost every one of them starts off as a traditional legal structure. And so there's this huge chasm between traditional legal structures and like this fully decentralized, it's only a token, it's only a foundation, you know, it's only a protocol and it's, you know, it runs everything. There's like this gap and like most things aren't crossing that gap well, if at all, right? Because it's crazy hard to go from like, oh, we had this thing to like, now it doesn't exist anymore. And so I think the root of it is this lack of legal structures. I bet in like 2030, we might be in a place where you can start off with a thing where like there is no for-profit company at any point. There's no- that, There's just a DAO with the multi-sig, but there's some notion of limited yeah. liability. And like we might see more, exactly. Yeah. Look, I, I, I agree with your point. And I, I also don't, I don't think it's fair to say like, well, the, the, you know, Hayden is a bad guy and he like planned this all along or something. Clearly they were in a tough spot. And I don't think they intended originally to do this because I was told by people that this was not the original intention when they, when they raised that round. And I agree with you. Look, if the regulatory structures were clearer and it was easier to like you know, do all this stuff, fine. Yes. I, I, I don't think the Uniswap uh, team is, are the bad guys here. I think the incentives that that kind of conspired to make this the only option they really had available to make this a viable business is the problem. I, I guess my thing is like, I think it even in, in some ways, it really comes down to investors is investors need to start demanding that these kinds of things do not happen, that they are not on the table as a possibility, that there's a divergence between the equity holders and the, the token holders such that like if you do an equity raise into another company, and that's fine, that equity, like, why does the DevCo have the domain? Why doesn't the foundation have the domain? Why does the DevCo have the front end? The, the foundation should have the front end, right? That is the problem here. If, if, yeah. the, if the DevCo just had like, oh, we're going to build a wallet and we're going to build this, we're going to build a Fiat on-ramp. Great. That's awesome. I love that. You know, maybe that's worth a lot. But a large part of the reason why they got such a large valuation is because they own the front end. And that I think is the, is the misalignment, the, like the core of the misalignment here. Yeah, I think of a comp actually as um, Oasis, which was a, originally it was built by Maker. Um, it was, I mean, the primary way die traded and MKR traded in the early days is what they used for liquidations. It sort of morphed into this savings tool, lending tool, like sort of this interface on top of Maker. And eventually spun out, they raised money separately for Oasis as you know an equity. But no one was under the impression that, oh yeah, MKR holders get fees from the Oasis front end because it's so clearly a different thing with a different name, with a different team that's separate from uh, MKR and people who work on sub DAOs for Maker. And so I, I agree. I think it's actually fine to have, you know, a, a separate team that is for profit, that is building something on top of a protocol and taking a fee for it. But it is about that sort of separation and, and delineation. Yeah. What I, what I don't like about it is that now that we're here, the Uniswap team kind of has to gaslight people in that, no, 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 this is not Uniswap. Uniswap is just the protocol. This front end is just like a separate thing we made. And because we did all the amazing work of building this front end, we deserve to get paid for it. At the same time, the same team is developing V4 and they're developing these protocol upgrades that are going to go directly to the DAO. And so it's just like, look, just at least admit to us that this is what's happening. You know, anyway, I don't know. I, I get really worked up over this because this is a, a fight I've had with, with several companies that are trying to do similar things. Another aspect of this that I don't quite understand is like, liability for 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 the front ends because like doesn't it seem like the legal system is trying to 
put even more of an onus on the front ends than the protocol over time. It feels like that. So I would argue that in some ways, this fee is actually paying for those future legal bills. Because I, I actually do think there will be a ton of li- like liability for, from the, owning the front end that maybe you're right, the foundation should harbor, but I'm not sure that it shields them from anything. Like, like I do think there's some very weird thing going on with like how governments are treating front ends and are all the over, you know, you, we saw like, all the misinformation of the last few days, right? Where like Elizabeth Warren and 28 senders wrote a mm-hmm. note saying like, crypto was used by Hamas with very inflated numbers. And then a bunch of people came out and were like, are you kidding me? Those are wrong numbers. And I kind of think this is one of those things where the owning the front end is like the thing that like will be like the misinformation more thing and like governments will go after that. And so I don't know. I, I think there is some risk premium to running the front end that, that maybe is, is worth having a fee for, but th- this is just more a tangential thing. Like I am not, I'm, I get your I get all of the sort of more like rational philosophical points you're making but and the related party thing being the one that stands out the most is like strong to to me at least but I do think there is also this weird legal risk with the front end that you're not kind of you do need to include as something that needs to be compensated for Yeah I look I agree with you but this is also not unique to Uniswap every single DeFi protocol every single app has a front end you know and Uniswap is kind of the only one we see doing this Obviously, they're they're the most profitable, so maybe that's a, a good explanation why. But it's also, I think, it really boils down to this fundraise they did that kind of set them down this path that became eventually unavoidable. Yeah, look, I, I agree with you, and also I, I can't imagine there are not going to be a lot of regulatory thorns with them basically now taking a portion of every single swap on Uniswap without asking any KYC information, without knowing you know source of funds, all that stuff. That that, that also seems like very dicey to me. And so it may end up eventually being a kind of self-own uh, that if they're taking fees from the front end without checking sanctions lists and without doing all this, or not sanctions lists, probably they're doing that, but without being able to verify, you know, source of funds and the uh, backgrounds of the addresses they're taking money from, like it may end up being a KYC front end, at which point it really does drive the volume somewhere else. But that might be the path that they're going down. I mean, I can see why they don't want to host a you know, front end is the majority of volume that they're not getting revenue from, right? Like if the end state is they do do all of those things, right? And they say like, oh, the nature of, you know, the legal clarity around this stuff is evolving. And like, you know, a law gets passed that says, you know, there's multiple draft bills out there, you know, that all theoretically could pass in the next cycle that would change the requirements on them substantially, in some ways, they might just be front running that with the expectation, you know, that they are going to implement KYC or they are going to implement, you know, different regimes that they don't today. And so I think it's hard to predict like the motivations behind it, but like it's possible they're just getting in front of proposed legislation. Sure. I, that That is plausible. I, I'd still, though, take issue with the way you started that answer, Robert, which is that, you know, why do they why would they host a front end that they don't get paid for? Everybody at Uniswap Labs owns UniToken. The Uniswap Labs itself has a bunch of Uni on the balance sheet, right? They are ostensibly already aligned with the protocol itself. Um, and again, this is not a problem anybody else has. Aave doesn't have this problem. Compound doesn't have this problem. All these different layer ones don't have this problem of like, why would I keep building for this when I'm not getting paid on every transaction? Yeah, anyway, whatever. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop beating this horse because I'm, I'm running in circles now. But, um, well, it just seems like of the four of us, you have the strongest uh, affinity to your argument. I'm just kind of, I, I, I don't know. I, <laughs> this is like the Wild West. I don't really know everything. I kind of, I uh, could imagine like there's so much stuff in the background that we have incomplete information on. So it's like, I don't know. I, I mean, if that's I true, like, no, I, I, that I don't believe. If we had incomplete, if, if we have incomplete information, then nobody has complete information. I, you know? I, I don't, I, I, you know, I don't like to assume that I, I have that much complete information. No, it's more that like, look, it's it's not that complicated, man. Like, it really isn't. It's it's very transparent to see. I, what I think the I think people who are this. people who are the most in regulators' crosshairs would do to things that for reasons that none of the four of us can perfectly divine. And I think that they, as one of the largest targets of every single regulator, just read every bill. It mentions them, every proposed bill. 
I, you know, there's so much stuff going on in that side of the world that I don't understand that I, I don't pretend to understand that I, I, it's very hard for me to have like a strong, like, opinion whereas like you know last week if calling saying sbf a psychopath that's a very easy opinion for me to rant about for an hour okay maybe there's some convoluted regulatory backroom dealing thing that's explaining all of this i guess that's possible if that's true you know give us a wink uniswap team and then we'll you know we'll forgive you but um i think usually the simplest explanation is tends to be correct in these cases and i think it's also the case that if even if that's true the way they went about this was absolutely horrendous and did not inspire any confidence that there was a good reason beyond the obvious one for, for doing this. Anyway, at the end of the day, Uniswap has a fee now. So if you, <laughs> for, for those of you who use Uniswap, uh, you may want to look into your you know neighborhood aggregator if you want to avoid paying 15 bips. I'm, I'm curious to track the fee and its actual buildup over time. You can extrapolate from like one or two days, but like seeing like where it actually goes in a year, I think is actually really fascinating and like valuable as information for the entire ecosystem. Watching the trend, does it go up? What is it as percent of volume? How does it evolve? It's annualizing to like 12 million right now. So just as yeah, a, it is much lower. I mean, it's very spiky volume, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just taking the three days multiplying by 365 over three. So, okay. So, yeah. So, obviously, the other thing too is that it much, much, much more volume in times of high volatility. So, until we actually see, I mean, right now we're kind of in a low volatility period, not a lot of volume. So, even over this month, I would not necessarily take that as representative for what you should. For sure. No, no. no. I, I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not. But the point is, you know, look, it's a decent, it's a decent business. I don't know if it's worth what they, you know, raised in terms of valuation, but it's obviously, you know, it's better than running a wallet. It's a good, you know, yes. it's a good, it's a good chunk of change. Anyway, cool. Well, I can't wait for the hate mail after this one. I'm sure uh, I'm going to get a lot of people yelling at me, but whatever. That's what that's what we're about in the show. Well, I think that's that's it. Shall we wrap it up? Yeah, we can circle the wagons. Circle, circle the wagons. What? Why? What? <laughs> okay, we're, we're circling. We're circling yeah, the centipede. Right. Okay, that's. <laughs> That's I think the, that's the right analogy. The okay. Okay. Yeah. The centipede. We're detaching the centipede, and it's going to go back on its go back on its merry Individual way. components. That's right. That's right. The the human centipede of the chopping block has detached. We're logging off, everybody. We'll be back next week for more uh, disgusting filth. Thanks, everyone. See y'all. Bye.